Welcome back to the Groundless Ground Podcast, the leading edge of mental health. I'm your host, Lisa Dale Miller. Remember, you can now subscribe to and download the Groundless Ground on your favorite podcast app or listen on YouTube, Spotify, and TuneIn. My guest today is Philip Moffat, longtime yogic and Vipassana meditation practitioner and teacher. A specialist in shepherding others through life transitions, Philip recently stepped down from a 10-year tenure as guiding teacher at Spirit Rock Meditation Center. Philip has authored two popular books on Buddhist practice, Emotional Chaos to Clarity and Dancing with Life. His most recent book, Awakening Through the Nine Bodies, Explorations in Consciousness for Mindfulness Meditation and Yoga Practitioners, explores extraordinary teachings on yoga and the subtle body transmitted to him by Himalayan master Swami Sri Prambarni Balyogi. Balyogi is now 86 years old and one of a disappearing group of elder master yoga teachers in India initiated into the Himalayan yoga forest tradition. This conversation with Philip is a rare opportunity to dive very deeply into profound teachings on the subtle body, teachings that are rarely offered to Western meditation practitioners. Philip, this is a great honor for me. I feel humbled interviewing the person I consider my primary Theravada Buddhist teacher, the person who many years ago helped me fully transition from a long-time engagement with Advaita Vedanta yoga philosophy into a deepening exploration of Theravada Buddhism. I remember that time well and quite fondly. It was a struggle. We're both laughing. (laughs) (laughs) Thankfully, I had you, so that maybe there was more of a struggle for you than there was for me. <laughs> we agreed to discuss your most recent book, The Nine Bodies, a profoundly comprehensive explication of Swami Sri Prambarni Balyogi's teachings on yoga and the subtle body. Can you tell us about Balyogi and this disappearing group of elder master yoga teachers in India known as the Himalayan forest yogis? You know, there was a strong tradition of these yogis living up in these caves in and around Rishikesh and really spread all over the the Mayans. These yogis learned from each other. So it was the oral tradition and it was a combination of the use of the body, but also the use of plant medicine, both the regular healing way, because they didn't have access to any kind of Western medicine. So they really learned to use plants would help with various kinds of ailments because they were spending so much time in meditation. They had a wide range of experiences that was open-ended in a certain way, contrasted with Buddhism, which has a a very kind of one-pointed direction of moving towards the end of suffering. In this more open tradition, which was not so unified, there was a much wider range of exploration of mind states, uh, altered states of consciousness, and uh, various kinds of energies that arose in the body. In many instances of exploring those and, and learning how to manipulate them. Now, in the time of the Buddha, we're told there was also that going on. 
but that the Buddha was not interested in that. He had various students of his that were able to do all sorts of things, including create a, an illusion. You could see something that wasn't there. And there's one sutta where this yogi studying with the Buddha is sort of bragging about his ability to do that. And the Buddha has him create this image of this ferocious tiger getting ready to attack. And it scares the person who created it. And the Buddha said, see? So the Buddha's philosophy was, I teach one thing and one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. As a continuum, by the way, that's why it's only one thing, is because that's the, you're either suffering or not suffering as a continuum. It's not two things in that way. And with this forest tradition, before the last, I don't know, 70 years or so, sometime as it became more and more popular before the Beatles, but certainly brought to another whole level by the Beatles, for Westerners to come to India in larger and larger droves to study with all of these yogis, it became more and more a, a kind of formula and the older ones died out. And so it became more and more rare to actually have people who, who knew themselves, not that they had heard others say, but they had had their own experience. And Bal Yogi is one of those who has had direct experience. He is a person of knowledge as opposed to a person of information. person of knowledge knows it directly. I have a feeling you could probably feel that when you were around him. Oh, yes. No, there's no question about it. And we're not talking about his personality, mind you. His personality has its, its own difficulty, as does mine, <laughs> in many different ways. But his actual experience uh, that is in the meditative realm in the realm of experiencing energies and uh, knowing all of this kind of subtle knowledge is, is genuine. What would you like listeners to know about your relationship with Bal Yogi and why these teachings were passed down to you? It's a bit of a mystery why he chose me. I had studied in the Shivananda tradition starting when I was 23 until at some point in my late 20s, I started doing much more Iyengar kind of yoga and left a lot of the Shivananda, which I still have deep, deep respect for the Shivananda tradition. And I think it's unfortunate that more of that has not settled in the U.S. In terms of subtle body, in terms of doing Hatha yoga for the purpose of meditation, its approach, assuming it has not changed, is really a good one. But I had studied with a teacher called Vishnu Devananda that uh, Swami Shivananda had sent over to the U.S. And Vishnu Devananda, as it turns out, unbeknownst completely to me, was best friends with Balyogi Prabharni. There we have this connection that was just there by coincidence or mysteriously there, however you would take it. And I told him that when I first came to see him, he asked me, well, what sort of yoga have you studied? But he did not at that time mention that he and, and, and Vishnu Devananda were friends. He just listened. I went there because I was actually going to Bogaya to sit under the Bodhi tree, which I did for a number of days. Bogaya is where the Buddha got enlightened, under the Bodhi tree. And I was very privileged to get to sit there since they usually run people off. They don't let them sit there. But for whatever mysterious reason, also they let me sit there for a number of days. And the people would complain about me <laughs> sitting there. And yet the guard would say, no, he's okay, leave him alone. So anyway, I, coming out of that experience, quite inspired by that experience, I went to Rishikesh because I'd heard about him. And I went there to ask about an issue challenge with my throat chakra that continues to this day. 
he was the first person that said, here's something for you to try. He took me aside and whispered this instruction to me as to what to do. And then I thought, okay, now it's all over. We got to go get on the train and get back to New Delhi because we're going somewhere else. And he said, well, first, just go look around the ashram. And he had his attendant take us around the ashram. You know, it was an okay thing to do. I wasn't really thrilled about doing that, but it was okay. And I'd seen a lot of ashrams. His ashram sits on a hill about a half a mile or so from the Ganga River where it comes out of, the, out of its source. But it's still pure there when it's flowing down at this point. As I was coming back down top of the hill, right where you walk down the hill to leave his gate, he was standing there and he said, where are you going? How long are you here for? I said, three days or whatever it was. And he said, okay, well, you can't leave. You have to stay here. And I said, I can't do that. I'm telling with my friend, I said, we've got plane reservations. He said, no, you got to stay here. And I, again, made one of these protests. Oh, I'll come back. Or it's nice to have seen you. And I appreciate it. And he says, no, I have things to teach you. You have to stay here so I can teach them to you. That stopped me. He must have recognized something. I make no claims. I did not prove to be a very good student in many ways. <laughs> and I never presented myself as a good student. I'm not dallying. I'm not playing around. I don't embrace the guru model. So that's the first problem. He is part of that guru system where everybody's touching his feet that come to see him. I don't have a Vedic scholarly background at all. In doing the Nine Bodies teachings, there's all of these Vedic references that I simply did not try to include because I didn't feel qualified and I felt as though I was only going to cause confusion. And I say that in the book. I don't, again, I try not to make any pretense here. And his teaching style and my learning style are, don't align very well. I like orderly. Understanding this allows you to understand the next thing, which allows you to understand the next thing, and it ties in with your sitting practice and so forth. That's not his teaching style at all. It's all over the place. It lacks form, structure. He will be talking about one thing and then switch to something else without saying why or what was the connection to the other thing, and you don't know if it's connected or not connected. And then he'll talk about a third thing, and you realize, oh, now that I know this third thing, this may have been the point he was trying to make about that second thing. But I wasn't listening to get that point because I didn't know what I was supposed to be listening for. I had to really learn to surrender and learn whatever I could learn. I could not direct my own learning. And whatever I got was what I got. And I'd have to do this time after time. I would get confused. He would want me to tell something back to him. At the end of one day, he'd say, okay, you study this tonight, and I want you to tell me about it tomorrow morning. And it went mixed. <laughs> That's why it took 14 years to do this book. Going back to that moment at the top of the hill, which is one of the big moments of my life, people have asked me, well, why did you stay if you weren't that interested? The only explanation, my intuition, is what finally decided. My only reflective using my frontal lobe was you never know when someone actually has something to teach you. This person doesn't seem to want anything from you. So I didn't feel being manipulated. He had asserted three times in the Buddhist tradition. That's how you get the Buddha to answer something. You ask three times. In part, I was surrendering because there was not anything I wanted. Uh, so here he was offering me something that was completely unspecified. And I didn't know him. It was a conundrum. But in the end, sometimes in these situations, we have to say, yes, I will be available. And nor was I going to get mad at him if it was all a waste of time. 
I had taken responsibility for myself. People expect the teacher to deliver the goods. And sometimes the teacher doesn't actually have the goods, or sometimes it's not the goods you need. Oftentimes, it's what you do with the experience that's the learning part. And in this instance, I had to work like crazy to get whatever level of understanding of these teachings that I ended up receiving. When we're fortunate enough to find a teacher that appears as though they have knowledge or inspiration for us, we may surrender to whatever to the style of learning, but we don't surrender our authority for being responsible for our own discernment of what's useful and not, and also what's safe and not. Absolutely. I think that's a perfect description of how I felt about you. <laughs> I'm happy to hear that. Your mind was already so sharp and, and so strong. He would have kicked me out if I'd been anywhere near as assertive of you. He, he wouldn't have put up with that at all. <laughs> well, this is so informative. You present the Nine Bodies teachings and practices as, this is a quote from the book, clearing areas of blockages, non-clarity, or stagnation that may be impeding inner movement towards samprajanya or clear seeing, and the eventual realization of the nature of mind. Your explication of the nine bodies concepts and techniques, to me, feels so in line with the Patanjali tradition, bringing together topologies of mind and philosophical frameworks and practices from Theravada, Vajrayana Buddhism, Samkhya, yoga philosophies. I was going to ask you whether Balyogi presented it this way, or if this is just a result of your lifetime of study and practice of Raja Yoga and Buddhism. That was one fortunate thing is I had studied Pantajali a fair amount. I was no expert or anything like that, but I had an understanding from both the yoga perspective and from Buddhism. He has all of Pantajali memorized. He will make a point and he'll say 2.13 and he will say it in Hindi and then say it in English. For me, at least, he anchored it in Pantajali now, maybe for a Vedic scholar, he would anchor it much more in the Vedas. Can you say a little more about how Bayogi's teachings correlate to Vajrayana Tantric Buddhism, Samkhya? Again, I don't feel qualified to really say that so much, but it's got a lot of the Shaivism in it. It is a collection of all that he was taught and exposed to. His understanding itself is its own system in a way. This is such a rare experience, having a conversation that's going to go to an area. My Tibetan teachers will go here because the subtle body certainly is featured in many of the practices in Vajrayana Buddhism. But in Theravada Buddhism, there's not so much discussion about it. The nine bodies teachings are so much about what I think of as the subtle body nervous system, which most of us don't get that much instruction in. You've described the subtle body nervous system as various energetic dimensions of consciousness that are felt but not thought. Your listeners are probably going to know that the tradition of the three bodies, the traditional Indian teaching that shows up in all sorts of different schools or lines of thought, we have a gross level of physical body or that relates to this teaching of also sheaths, a coarse level of existence, and then a subtle level, and then a causal level. These were the three that I learned in my own Raja Yoga practice starting in my 20s and heard about them over and over again. They're coming out of this long, multi-day, continuous meditative state. 
we in the West often think that somebody sitting three days without moving is impossible, but it's just not true. It, it, there's been way too many recountings of people being able to do this. So we human beings can do it. Maybe you and I can't, but somebody listening to this maybe can, or maybe we can, and maybe anybody can if they really apply themselves. Our capacities are greater than the restless mind. He came out of this time with this vision that there, in fact, were nine bodies or nine levels of consciousness. Every level of consciousness has its own organs of perception. So the physical body is the first body, the most manifest body that is manifest in terms of we can easily confirm its existence through touch, through sight. It's easily accessible. The second of these bodies is the uh, emotional body in the sense of accessible, being able to notice that we have emotions. But actually, not everybody is able to easily know they're having an emotion even, let alone knowing what it is or having an actual felt sense of it. And that's why in between there's this vital body, the vital body being how much energy you have, the sense of your life force. Everybody can know are they tired or not tired. We can feel our energy being expended. These are the three levels of everyday reality that even though we are not organized in this way in the West, we use language that describes our experience of all three of these. The one that is most difficult for most people is the emotional body. Of course, they're all interrelated. So someone who hates their body appearance for they're too thin, they're too fat, they're, they're too weak, they're too whatever, that is an emotional body's relationship to the physical, the physical level of consciousness. Because the body itself doesn't hate the body. It's not rejecting the body. It's the emotional body that's rejecting the physical body or embracing it. They all affect one another. So if the emotional body is disturbed, it affects the amount of energy, which then affects the physical body. Uh, and each of them having their own kind of consciousness, which if you think about it, yeah, that's not hard to imagine. That's sort of obvious. Beyond that is the subtle body. The subtle body level is made up of three bodies, three levels of consciousness, three levels of beingness, being, being present. The etheric body is the body that actually contains those lower three bodies. So you're in an energetic relationship through consciousness with our physical body, the strength of its manifestation is coming through the etheric body, the same with the vital body, and that's the direct contact with the etheric body. And when we get cut off from the etheric body, we lose vitality. And then with our emotional body, it is contained in this realm. It's an alive space, really alive. The electrical field of it is very strong. That starts this relationship of moving from our ordinary experience to these more subtle levels. The Tibetans were interested in this because Tibetan Buddhism came across from India in a way that this kind of exploration that in the Indian tradition was happening, that came on straight into Tibet. And that's why I think there is this difference because they were interested in that, they embraced that, and they explored it even further. The Nine Bodies teachings would fit more into that tradition in the four to the nine bodies, Anand Tupton Rinpoche, who never had heard of the nine bodies, clearly relates it directly to the Tibetan tradition. That is a natural overlap between the Indian yoga forest tradition and the Buddhist traditions, in my view. The second coming into yes. Tibet. The first one came from China. The second one 
Padmasambhava was already practicing this mix of Kashmiri Shaivite sadhanas along with the Buddhist teaching using the Buddhist deities. There was that mix with Bond deities that already existed. The Ananda University, where all of these different scholars and practitioners studied and practiced together, there was a real mixture there. And one book describing the overlap between Pantajali and Buddhism makes the point that the time Pantajali would have been writing this was the time when they were all studying together. So it wasn't so segmented out the way it got segmented by scholars. Yeah. I actually recommend when people are interested in this that they read Edwin Bryant's translation of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, primarily because he separates out, okay, this is from Sankhya, and this is from Buddhism, and this is from this tradition, and here's the Upanishads, and it's very interesting. I have recommended Chip Hartram's version also because he doesn't go through all of those, but he really does the parallel with Buddhism. People ask me about how you practice You practice using a form that works for you. You don't have to be afraid of opening to an experience or perspective that will cause you to abandon your original practice. If your practice is strong, you're not going to get confused. If you're just doing a little bit of dabbling here and dabbling there, that's very confusing. You can dabble as an initial exploration, but at some point, choose some practice and give it some years to work you. And it's kind of like alchemy in that way. You're being cooked. It's a purification of your emotional body, but it's also, I'm going to say purification of mind, but I don't really use that word in the nine bodies because it's a confusing word and we don't have any agreement about it. And then, of course, in the yoga world in particular, The asanas and all the kriyas and so forth are part of the physical purification. But even sitting, if you just sit, you'll receive great body work while you're sitting there at times. Your nervous system will relax in a way that is very good for the body. These are healing modalities provided one does them often enough for enough period of time that one gives it a chance to work. They're not instant cures. They're not instant injections of learning. And then I run into someone that says, oh, but my very first sit, I had this great experience. And I asked them, what have you been doing since then? Oh, well, I've been trying to get back to that experience. We call this a stamped-in dopamine memory. And it happens anytime a person has a very strong experience that's pleasurable. And the hippocampus lays down the memory in such a way. This is often what happens with people's first drug trip that was really amazing. And they're always chasing this experience that you'll never have that one again because the brain's used to it now. Well, that's very good. Why don't you say that label again for your listeners? Stamped in dopamine memory. I like telling my patients who come to work with me for addiction issues about this. And they're like, oh, that's why I can never get it again. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, yeah, that's why. In practice, there are times I have found it wise to cultivate the ability to do something, but that's different than a specific experience. So one of the things that uh, that I teach every year, and I've done so for 16 or 17 years now, is a 10-day concentration retreat. Its purpose is collecting and unifying the mind, not going into the deepest absorption. That takes much longer actually learning how to collect and unify your mind. So even in the practice of Vipassana and mindfulness, we are directing the mind. Sometimes we're practicing what's called choiceless awareness, but other times we're directing the mind. And in the nine bodies teachings, you're being asked to direct the mind. 
So we're going exactly where I wanted to go. In your discussion of the subtle body, you mentioned consciousnesses over and over again. And you took great care in this book to distinguish various forms of consciousness, for instance, sense consciousness, luminous consciousness, and what you term pure awareness. You said luminous consciousness is consciousness of its own existence, and it has consciousness itself as an object, while pure awareness has no object and no subject. There's no self, no entity to experience any subject or object. The awareness simply is. What I loved about this book was that you were so attentive to not just saying, okay, there are these subtle realms and these bodies and different consciousnesses, but you gave a practice here, go do this and you'll be able to explore this very thing. I think a lot of advanced practitioners in the yoga tradition and Buddhist tradition will appreciate so much being able to have a skilled and very experienced teacher say, you may have experienced this before without knowing what it is. Almost like a modern version of jhana practice, but much, 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 much more sophisticated. It's allowing practitioners to make that distinction between meditative experience and actual realization. Mindfulness, as it's moved out into the world, is mindfulness of being in the moment. It becomes balanced towards what is the goal of the moment. Your goal of getting something done, or your goal of making yourself a better person, or just being present because of wandering mind. But mindfulness for insight, it's not focused on these secondary goals. It's having a direct experience that brings a sense of realization, which brings a sense of change in perspective. The very nature of our consciousness reveals itself. Whether you think that consciousness is an emergent quality of the components of the brain, or you feel as though there is something called a mind, either way, it can be known directly. Not known as in, in its entirety, but known in its characteristics in a way that alters your sense of what is and what you are, your knowing essence. So one starts out being aware of an object. There is a you being aware of an object, and you're being mindful of that experience. Ordinarily, the consciousness is happening, but not necessarily anyone being aware of the consciousness. You may be aware that your back's hurting, but you're not aware of how you're relating to the back is hurting. So you don't have meta-awareness. That's right. And so the first level of growth in mindfulness is you're aware of your relationship to your moment-to-moment experience. If mindfulness isn't being taught at that level, it's lacking the freedom because it's how we relate to experience that we start to have any freedom. Anytime I feel discomfort, I've got a pattern of anxiety that controls so much of what I do. That's an insight. Sometimes the insight isn't enough because agitation in the nervous system or even the subtle body that are very, very old and have this kind of habit quality. I feel like the nine bodies work tends to help practitioners have even deeper level of insight and some way to work with some of that material that they might be experiencing. In Theravada Buddhism, what we teach is that if you see the suffering in your relationship to your moment-to-moment experience that's repeating as a pattern, if you see it long enough and often enough, you just can't stand it anymore and it just drops away. It is a kind of purification by recognizing the suffering over and over again. 
We're taught that tanha, thirst, is causing our minds to be deluded, whether with greed or with aversion or just pure delusion. And seeing it over and over again, it breaks those knots up. So that's the basic formula there. The value of the nine bodies is that you can notice where you are and what level of experience of consciousness you're actually resting in while you're having a strong reaction. To give you an example, the first time I ever taught a day long on the teachings of the nine bodies. I was there. Oh, you were there. I was. I was like, what in the world is this? And I had those little posters, those blown up illustrations. That's right. (laughs) And, you know, like 60 people came. It was amazing. This one man that had actually flown in from out of state to attend this day long, he came up to me right after I had taught about the astral body. And he said to me with wonderment, all these years, this is where I sit when I practice. I had no idea that I could now see why things aren't moving. He said, I'm not really present in certain ways because I'm, I'm actually hanging out there in the astral body. He had studied with me, you know, some number of times. And before I'd had this language, I didn't know that either. I can now use this making suggestions for people's practice, but my aspiration is that by reading about the nine bodies and practicing, they will come to their own realizations just like this gentleman did. To give you another example, the first time I taught a three-day retreat on the nine bodies, a number of the people when I was explaining the emotional body and then having them practice with the emotional body in the time of reporting back, they said, I I can't stay in the emotional body. It's just too much for me. And I said, well, where do you go? And they said, well, to the astral body. And this was completely news to me. Well, Yogi had never told me that people did that. I don't think he particularly knew. And I don't have trouble staying with the emotional body. People with a certain level of trauma in particularly that has not been resolved, when I was asking them to meditate on the emotional body, it was too much. Although they were, in theory, being mindful of the emotions as they were rising and passing, but to actually felt the bodiness, the consciousness, that level of being of emotional body was too much. I really learned from that. I described the etheric body slightly. The etheric body is characterized by space and and all that's contained in space, including storehouse consciousness. Storehouse consciousness is very important in the Yogacara tradition of Buddhism, where it's like Freud's unconscious. There's this storehouse consciousness where all the seeds of karma exist. And that's why you can suddenly know something that, how did I know that? In this description of the dimensions of consciousness, this is how you can know that that knowledge is available free of time. It's the etheric body when you suddenly feel, I need to call my friend, something's wrong with my friend. Hmm. That quote intuition came through the etheric body. So the etheric body holds species connectedness, a group knowledge base. Yes, it's like antenna that brings in all this information. And it also brings in energy from the more and more subtle bodies flows through into these coarse levels The life force is larger than our own physical realm life force. One of the things that convinced me Bal Yogi was for real in his knowledge was when he started talking about the etheric body and he talked about experiences that I'd had all my life and I'd never thought of it as a body. I thought it was a random experience that sometimes there was this kind of energy, you know, 
And I knew that I had this other energetic experience, but I just thought it was random. But the moment he said it was a body, I immediately recognized that was true, that it was a level of consciousness. It was so obvious, I was like, how come I never have considered that? He organized my perception in a way that was empowering. I had to make a big decision to be this revealing about these teachings because I did not hold anything back that I could capture in words. This was a very big decision because it's giving, in a way, too much knowledge too freely to people who might not know what to do with it. They're not really contained by ethics or realization of their own limitation. But in the end, I thought it was better to get these teachings out for people like me, because that would have been very useful to me. Way back, I was having experiences that I didn't know how to structure when I was a Raja Yogi. Vishnu Devananda never wanted to talk with me, but the other Swamis, when I would describe my experiences to them, they would just be blank. They were going into altered states, but they were different. There was decades of my perception not growing because I didn't have a frame of seeing that would have allowed it to grow directly. This is my offering of some light for some people. That last three bodies is so difficult to describe. I hate to put you on the spot. I thought maybe say something about these three most subtle bodies because they go beyond body as we think of it. So just to get all the listeners back in line with this, we start with accessing the physical body, then we access our own vitality. Then you do this over and over again until you can do it and you're not confused. Then accessing the emotional body. And you keep practicing at that level until you know that you can do that. And knowing doesn't mean every time, but most of the time with some ease. And please, I say to your listeners, don't jump ahead. You're so limiting yourself so that you really have confidence. And then you start to feel the etheric body and the astral body, the etheric body being this presence of the energy, the astral body being where our consciousness is outside the physical body. And then the, the sixth body is the intuitional body, which uh, according to Bal Yogi is what the Buddha was such a master at accessing, where he could sit with this eye of awareness. He could see things that with ordinary mind we can't see. In our meditation, you literally can invite, may I understand X or Y? The mind is so pliable and placeable, you can literally feel what your mind is capable of. The point is to then know how to use that deep mind state for purposes of insight. What kind of insight? Insight that is liberating, kind of understanding that allows shifts away from suffering. So with that as a background, we come to these last three bodies. You're sitting there in the intuitional body, and you open to the knowing that is direct. It is intuitional of these three most subtle bodies, spiritual, divine, and cosmic the spiritual was the one that was most um, inspiring to me. So in the spiritual body, it's like accessing the way consciousness is like sunlight. It's unconditional. So just like the sun shines on roses and weeds, it's not discriminating. It's the bountiful blessing of the manifest realm. That's where the freedom comes in because everything is blessed with consciousness. We can imagine anything all of the amazing things that science can do is because of this gift of radiating consciousness. 
you can feel the potential of that consciousness go into the energetic and physical realms. If you've ever had the experience, everything's perfect as it is, that is a perspective from the spiritual body. It's so wonderful when you feel that. And I've worked with many students that have felt that at least once. And that's not like a deluded statement or your mind's not seeing clearly. One perspective, everything is perfect just as it is. And it's beautiful, including the suffering. So this is often described as the innate luminosity, that capacity to illuminate everything. Everything is welcome because the awareness itself is open-hearted. Nothing's left out. The innate capacity for illuminating whatever comes in the field of mind. Very well said. In Balayogi's map, that electricity of consciousness moving in to energetic experience in this realm, that is what is lighting up the brain. And he uses this analogy of a light bulb. Really, it's not the light bulb that's lighting up the room. It's the electricity. But the light bulb is necessary, Yes. but not the creator of the electricity. Nor is the electricity creating the light bulb. The lamp that lights itself from the Dzogchen and Mahamudra teaching. Right. With all of this neuroscience study, we're watching the way the light bulb works, but we're not watching the electricity. And I know that's a controversial view. I don't think that's controversial. You don't? Nobody has any idea how to actually identify consciousness itself. Well, so that's the spiritual body. And it's sitting right there next to the intuitive body. That's the crossover point into the manifest. And so the first level of crossover is energetic, not in physicality. Would you say that's why we have a subtle body nervous system? Physicality is too coarse to line up to that level of consciousness. Well, Yogi uses this distinction between the smell of the flower and this essence in the flower itself. The divine body, it's the most subtle level that we can directly experience. That empty, luminous, responsive awareness. Mm-hmm. And it's pure form when there's no self, no object. There's no one to perceive an object. Up until that time, you can say, oh, there's objectless awareness, but the object is awareness itself. People get very confused about that, and it leads to a lot of misunderstanding. They can be reifying consciousness. This is akin to, in the Dzogchen and Mahamudra tradition, the union of emptiness and luminosity. Then the yogic traditions, they don't posit emptiness, they posit ishvara rather than emptiness. One illustration called luminous consciousness really captures just what you were saying. Do you want me to include that illustration in the show notes? That would really be great. You have to study it for quite a while. I was taught this way by Bhagavad Yogi. First, he just gave me an illustration, had me look at it. And then he would give me some explanation and then have me look at it again to meditate on it. There's a transmission level involved in these illustrations. And then read more of my text. Don't just read my text, then look at the illustrations. I was showing some of these illustrations to my Buddhist teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, and I showed him this luminous consciousness illustration. He must have spent at least three minutes, maybe more, maybe five, somewhere in there, just looking at it. And he looked up at me and he said, I don't need any explanation. I get this. And of course he would. Mr. Deathless, of course he would. (laughs) 
The divine body is this most subtle level of experience we can have. And directing our attention to having these various kinds of access is not grasping. It is exploring for our sake of understanding. You use this to enhance your practice. While Yogi was very clear, these are not liberation teachings. These are teachings to enhance your experience on your path of liberation. If you had a map and you were going from St. Louis to Los Angeles, the map would say, if you go this way, you get to experience the Grand Canyon. You can go other ways, but there's all of these experiences that make up the wholeness of a human experience that aren't known. And then the final body is the cosmic body, and the cosmic body can't be even accessed intuitively. It is only implied. It's mysterious. That's the things that the Buddha just didn't talk about. Now, maybe there's a point of becoming one with our consciousness. I don't know. I haven't had that experience that would give me uh, access to that. I always like to stress that. Its level of consciousness feels like source. It's not a thing source. You can't really put any words on it. Did Balyogi imply that he actually experienced this cosmic level? Or was he just saying that there was some knowing that it was there? You know, you'd have to ask him, but as I heard it, he was saying that it's implied. He was saying it could not be experienced. When I read this part of the book, I thought to myself, well, that must be what Parinirvana is actually about. You have to drop the body, the physical existence, in order to actually experience source. There's some correlation here, again, in the Tibetan tradition at the point of death, the clear light awareness which if you recognize the child luminosity, what we've already described as that spiritual aspect, luminous empty awareness, that if you recognize it at the point of death, then that merges with source. I have a slight alteration to what you said because I agree with you. The point that I would point people to is not the moment of death, but those moments right after death. If you're going to practice now, practice for those moments right after death. From my own experience, that is what I practice. You have a lot of company. One thing that I really want to just make very, very clear to the listeners, you present the framework for the nine bodies. You present actual meditative techniques in order to be able to have intimacy and experience with the nine bodies. And then there's this beautiful illustrations that Bal Yogi did that we've just referred to you not only present them as meditative aids or yantras, but then you offer very subtle, I can't even call it an explanation. I don't know. It's almost as though you're just offering your own intimate experience, which I found so generous. One of the things that was mind-blowing was that these illustrations uh, were created on a symbolic level. So everything in the illustrations means something. And they have more than one level of meaning. The last time this was done regularly was in the Middle Ages with the alchemy text. Those people who created those alchemy texts were trying to use non-words to capture something that would change the ordinary mind to a golden understanding. Here I come across this yogi who's done this in some way. I tell people, be patient with this because the mind really gets in a different space. And don't be disappointed when you come back to it that your mind is not in that space. You don't get there and then it's automatically there. That's one of the reasons it took me forever to write this book. And I would have access, then I would lose it. And I'd have to reestablish access. 
but it took years and years where this was one of my realities. Like I could understand this the way you would understand science or a foreign language or music. With each illustration, I ask you some questions to help you think about it. And I give you a meditation and a reflection to do. My goal is to empower the reader. My aspiration is to have the reader hold their own light. Well, you can really feel that. On the other hand, there is usefulness in being able to have direct access to someone who can answer questions. So I think you're giving Nine Bodies retreats. I do non-residential retreats here in Northern California and in Seattle. And then I do residential retreats at Spirit Rock where you come for five or six days. We use the mindfulness techniques all the techniques that you would ordinarily utilize in a Vipassana retreat. The objects you work with are these nine bodies and some of the illustrations. I had to get this from him directly. His idea of doing the book was that we do one paragraph and then the illustration. He saw like a 30, 40 page book. And I kept saying, well, Yogi, the Western mind does not work this way. The rest of us need learning aids. We had our struggles over that. Well, he chose very well. I can't imagine anyone else who could have written this. Well, I can imagine a much more scholarly version of it. I could feel that wasn't his intention. His no, it wasn't. intention was, here's this knowledge, go practice. And I know directly, first person experience with you. He put it in the hands of someone who has such depth in not just their practice, but knowledge. Without question, I am a practitioner. This book is written by a practitioner for practitioners. I break things down into such small pieces so that I can understand them. It's a great gift. I can't thank you enough. I don't know if you know what is going on right now in the mindfulness meditation movement. A growing sense that, I know this sounds strange, people are having a variety of contemplative experiences and because nobody's explaining what they are, they're freaking out. So Willoughby Britton and Jared Lindell and David Trelevin out of Brown University did this very extensive study on the varieties of contemplative experiences people have, some of which the same experience, one person will experience it as horrible and the other person will experience it as amazing. They are tying trauma history as one reason why various experiences might be difficult for one person and not for another person. They've initiated this trauma-informed mindfulness meditation training for MBSR teachers to teach them about the nervous system and trauma and what to do if people in your classes are having this because it's not just people on retreats that are having it. For me, as a seasoned practitioner, I'm like, yes, of course, you're going to have experiences. But also as a clinician, I recognize experiences can be extremely difficult for people when they don't have someone they can go to that has a container of understanding. And I know you've been teaching retreats for so many years. I'm sure you've seen every variety of this. But I have to say, in some way, this book is an antidote, something that a real practitioner could pick up and distinguish. Here's what I experienced. Here's the context in which I can have some understanding of it and also not cling to it as a terrible thing or as the thing I want to have again, because that must be what enlightenment is. I appreciate your saying that, and I really hope that's true. I have more people coming to me with their challenging experiences in meditation than I have time for. 
there really is a wide variety of experiences that can happen because it's such a vast universe. And, you know, I've been teaching uh, retreats for 20 years. There is some correlation between a degree of trauma or other experience. It doesn't have to be just trauma, but having some sort of other childhood experience. I just call it other. That causes some door perception. It doesn't get closed all the way because we don't buy into the agreed upon cognitive reality. People with those kinds of backgrounds can more easily have a certain experience or have it more intensely, or the part that is experiencing it is the part that was in trauma and it's not moved through. And so it's getting distorted because of what's still there energetically. Yeah. Once we understand that this is impersonal and it's not the narrative, it's yes. the phenomenon. So moving from narrative to phenomenon understanding, which is what the Buddha was, he was the first phenomenologist. Yes. You utilize mindfulness to understand your experience as phenomena. Phenomenal experience includes everything. It's aliveness, knowing the experience within the experience, as the Buddha said over and over again. And hopefully the nine bodies will help you do that. In offering these teachings, I have inevitably made mistakes. And I don't feel as though my mistakes are going to block learning. And in your own practice, you will find whatever mistakes that I've made, you will be part of the correction of that. I'll give you a little mystery about that, that I learned from Balyogi. There is the knowing of doing. That's its own knowing. So there's a doing level. There's a knowledge level. There's a knowing of doing, the knowing of knowing, and then there's the knowing of being. And those are very different knowing. Well, you are my precious teacher. I cannot thank you enough, Philip, for giving your time. Thank you. It's a pleasure being with you. Thanks for listening to today's show. The Groundless Ground podcast is now available on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. To find out more about this episode, see a list of upcoming guests, or get in touch, visit groundlessground.com. Now let's dedicate our efforts to the healing of our planet and all its inhabitants. See you next time on The Groundless Ground.